Hi, folks. This is John Hammontree, and you're listening to a special Thanksgiving bonus episode of Reckon Radio. Our guest today is Senator Doug Jones, who shocked the world just over a year ago when he beat Roy Moore to become Alabama's first Democratic senator in 25 years. Thanks for coming by, Senator. Hey, Jones. my pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. So I think it's fair to say that the world was shocked. But how surprised were you by your win over Roy Moore? Oh, I wasn't surprised by the time we got there. I mean, you know, look, when we started our campaign in May, uh, we knew we had a path to win it and it really didn't matter who the nominee was going to be we had a we were looking to see we thought it'd be one of two people and we felt like we had a strong path and it just got better as time went on I mean as people started focusing on this election uh, and what it meant for the state of Alabama and uh, we felt very good that it would it would go our way it was actually a little closer than we ended up thinking it might be uh, but that's just the nature of politics these days we felt good Well, your race was close. You beat Roy Moore by just over 21,000 votes last year in a special election. And this year, most of Alabama's statewide Democratic candidates actually exceeded your vote total, but then they lost by about 17 points statewide. And every red state Democrat on the ballot in the South, but Joe Manchin lost. So I guess the question that's on everybody's mind is, can you win in a regular election in 2020? Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. If you just look at the things that we're doing around the state, uh, you know, we've we've we're taking our state uh, uh, by storm in the sense that we have got everybody's back just in the last two days. I've been everywhere from Mobile all the way up to Cherokee County talking about tariffs and manufacturers in Mobile and cotton ginning up in, in uh, center. Uh, today. So we're looking at a lot of different things. And I think people understand that because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, people uh, are going to vote the way they're going to vote for president. But at the same time, they also want to make sure they have a senator that's got their back. And I think regardless of where people stand politically, uh, the one thing they're going to know about me in 2020 is that I've got their back. They may not agree with me on every issue. That's that'll never happen. My wife doesn't even agree with me on every issue uh, that I vote on. But the fact of the matter is they're going to understand and know that I've got their back. And I think that that's really important. But in this past election cycle, over 60 percent of Alabamians did vote straight ticket. Obviously, President Trump is a big draw. So how do you motivate voters to cross over? I think it's, it's, it's really simple uh, to do that. You go and you talk to them. You have the kind of dialogues that you do. We will, we're going to be in a better position because, number one, I believe we'll have a better party infrastructure in two years. Number two, uh, I've got the ability to move around the state now. Most of the candidates that we've seen didn't have the money. They didn't have the ability to, to go out as early as we did. I will be in a, much more of a known commodity than our statewide candidates were this time. And we had some great Democratic candidates uh, this time. They just could not get out there as much, and they didn't have the funds. We will have the money. We will be able to raise the money uh, to make this race the kind of race we want to. And I've got, I will be out there all the time. I've, I've never quit campaigning. But also, my Senate duties take me to all four corners of the state of Alabama, uh, and people see us, and they will be able to talk to us and touch us and understand who, who I am and what I'm trying to do for the state. So I think there's a big difference, despite the fact that there were so many. I don't think it was over 60 percent, but there was a, it was a more than a majority that voted straight ticket Republican. But at the same time, uh, we'll have more people voting. There'll be more uh, in the presidential race. Uh, and, and historically, people will tell you that they will, those people, those extra folks that have come out, will be splitting their ballots. Well, one of the things that we did last week was we asked our Facebook audience what they wanted to hear from you. 
And uh, one of our readers, Shane Wall, uh, wanted to know, and this speaks to what you were just talking about, what are you doing to strengthen the Democratic Party in Alabama? I mean, the infrastructure, like you said, is poor. Well, it's, it's non-existent. It's not just poor. It's non-existent. We, we, look, I have been working for the last few months to try to get a change of, of leadership. That is still pending out there. I mean, a lot of people don't know this and don't understand this. But there's actually a fairly significant challenge that's pending with the Democratic National Committee right now uh, to invalidate the election that occurred last August. I think there were a number of irregularities. To clarify, you're talking about the election, of Nancy, the inter-party yeah, election. Yeah, the, yes. the chair okay. and the vice chair are also members of the DNC. And so there's been two challenges filed to challenge that election and also to invalidate everything else that was done. I don't know where that will land. I know it will be heard early next year by the DNC, but it's a very serious challenge. And I think that if we can, if that challenge is even remotely successful, there will be some changes. But I think you're also seeing just a momentum from the grassroots level. In the last couple of years, it's just being a, a quiet disgruntlement. But now people really understand and see that we have got to have a competitive two-party system in order for this state to really progress. That doesn't mean that Democrats have to dominate. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean Republicans do either. We just got to have a dialogue and we've got to be competitive. And we are working to do some things to try to make sure that in the coming two years, we will have a change of leadership that will be able to raise some money, develop the infrastructure, to develop the social media strategy that's been non-existent, to help recruit candidates, all of which we've, n- we've not seen in the last couple of election cycles. But I, am, I really believe, as I'm sitting here today, that you're going to see that change in the, in the real near future. One of our readers also asked, how do you plan to balance policy you believe in and believe is represent- representational of your constituency while also doing things that appeal to the heavily conservative Alabama voter base? Well, I'm, I'm just going to do what I think is the right thing and explain my decisions. Uh, we have uh, access to a ton of information. I mean, we, our staff, we've, I've got a really rock star staff. They do an incredible job on so many issues. They brief me with details. We get down into the, into the minutia. And so that every decision I make is going to be a decision that I think is consistent with what I believe is in the best interest of, of, of the people in the state. But it's not going to be based just necessarily on a popularity contest. You, you know, if you, if you want to base a decision based strictly on polling data, you know, you may as well have a robot up there you know, mashing the button as to yay or nay. That's not what we do. But what I, I do plan on doing and what we've been doing is to be able to get out there and talk and listen to people because if we miss something, we want to make sure that we understand all the issues as much as we possibly can, getting all sides of those issues, make a decision, and then be able to go back and explain those decisions. And people may accept it or may they, they may not. Sometimes they do not simply because of political considerations. Um, and so we're going to do the best we can, but it's not going to be a situation where we just simply put our political finger to the wind and go that way. I don't think that that's a good public servant that does that. Well, I should note that according to 538, you've voted with what they consider President Trump's agenda exactly 50% of the time. So you you are 50-50. You're right <laughs> down there in the middle. It's slightly more than Claire McCaskill, who lost her re-election campaign, but it's less than Joe Manchin, who won. So you're telling me that this isn't calculated. This is just no, coincidence. I, you know, my... my I am who I am, and I have, uh, I've, I've been around the block of, of, for a long time, uh, practicing law, been involved in politics for a long time, studied some of these issues a lot uh, more than others, and that's just the way those numbers have worked out. I don't know what those numbers are based on, by the way, because so many are based on judicial nominees, and in which most of my, a lot of my votes have been 
Trump nominees for, for judges and for his administration. But that's just because I think the constitutional duty kind of leans that way. So I, I don't really know what they, they, they do that on. For, you know, and there's some, for instance, I don't know whether it's a Trump agenda or, or someone else. For instance, the banking deregulation bill, a lot of Democrats didn't vote against that, but you had 17 that did. The president signed that. It was a, a, a good piece of legislation opioid bill. I don't know whose agenda that was because everybody was on board with that one. It passed the Senate 99 to 1. Well, the banking bill that you just mentioned, I mean, that was one of the instances where you got hit pretty hard from the left. Yeah. You've, you've been hit from the right, obviously, yes. and we'll get into that in a little bit. There was a writer for The Root, Michael Harriet, said that when you voted for the changes to the Dodd-Frank regulations, you were throwing your black voters to the wolves, how would you respond to it's that? It's the most absurd comment that we've heard. I mean, that, that's just indicative of someone who is writing this stuff on a blog or whatever he writes for and just has no clue about the real issues and the evidence behind it. And because he was basing that strictly on the collection of data that is allowed to, that lawyers and others use to prove discrimination in housing. And the fact of the matter is that it only affected 4% of the data that's collected to do that. It, and all of the data that has been collected for already over 40 years is still intact. So that is a perfect example of someone criticizing someone for a vote in which they don't know what the hell they're talking about. I would say the most controversial vote you've probably taken this year, the most heavily criticized vote, at least by uh, your voters in Alabama, is the judicial vote uh, around Brett Kavanaugh, Trump's Supreme Court justice nominee. You mentioned that you voted for a lot of Trump's judges, but obviously you very publicly voted against the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. Why? Well, it's a couple of things. Let me clarify something. Uh, and there are a number of factors. Number one, I've, I criticized to begin with how political that decision had, had been made. From the very beginning, it was politicized by both Republicans and Democrats. And that was just it's it's we are in a bad place in this country when a Supreme Court nomination is politicized the way that one started out being it, it, it got worse as it went on. But it started out being very political. People going to their corners, announcing what they were going to do. And, you know, I looked at that. We, we spent hours and hours and hours every day for two or three months. I had a briefing on his record. It was a flawed process because we didn't get to look at all of his record. They withheld a lot. And they, we didn't even get to look at documents that Chairman Grassley, uh, Chairman of Judiciary, had initially requested himself. And the archive said it's going to take a little bit longer to do it. And he went ahead with the committee hearings anyway. So, number one, it was a flawed process, and I didn't look at that. Second thing, I've seen documents and, in there that are confidential, that, that for whatever reason, they won't be made public for a long, long time. Was this the FBI report? Or no, this no, this was even before that. These were White House documents that I didn't understand why they were not, not being released. But I, I was very concerned going into that hearing or coming out of his first hearing that he had not been truthful with the committee on a number of really key points. Unfortunately, I can't discuss those. And then at the end of the day, what I was looking for in a Supreme Court justice is someone who is going to be fair and balanced. I did not believe that was the case. I did not believe that Judge Kavanaugh was going to be fair, balanced, or independent. And I think he demonstrated that in the final hearing. I voted for a lot of conservative judges, people that may uh, disagree, I may disagree with on a number of occasions. That's not the test here for me. 
but someone, a judicial philosophy is not a, the test for me, but a judicial agenda is a disqualifier for me. And I think he ended up demonstrating that with the way he handled himself at that last hearing. And John, I'm going to tell you, and the way I looked at this with some, some of my business leaders who really wanted me to vote for, for him because he was a pro-business justice. I've looked at them and said, look, there's not, there's not a CEO that I know of that would have hired him if they'd have brought him a, a candidate back for a second interview because they had discovered something they needed to ask him about, and that candidate blew up at him, just blew up and challenged him the way he did, and in a way that shows that he had a, a personal agenda rather than just defending himself or explaining, I don't think they would have hired him, and they especially wouldn't have hired him if they had known that there was a pool of candidates out there that is a mile wide and a mile deep, that have just as qualified as Brett Kavanaugh. And they also wouldn't have hired him knowing with all of that that if they did hire him, they couldn't fire him. It's a lifetime appointment. And so I was very comfortable with the fact that I did not believe that he was suited for the Supreme Court. And there were a lot of things that went into that. We could talk for hours on it probably. Well, um, I, I do want to bring up, I mean, we kind of talked around it a little bit, but obviously the testimony of Dr. Ford, uh, who had accused Brett Kavanaugh of assaulting her in high school. Right. The, the world watched that testimony. Did you watch the testimony? I yourself? watched the testimony. Yeah, we had set up, you know, I'm not on the committee, the Judiciary Committee, but we had set up a, a special place in my personal office so that me and the key staff members could watch it uh, as it was unfolding. And you had mentioned that some of your staff members were actually harassed. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, during during that time, especially after I announced my vote, you know, we had phone calls that were just ugly, just downright ugly. I mean, phone calls where people said that they, you know, hoped that the, the young girl answering the phone might get sexually assaulted one day. Not threatening phone calls, just ugly tribal phone calls that, that uh, you know, you really hoped in America that we wouldn't uh, have. And uh, so we, we watched that. And those, you know, look, I have been a lawyer for 40 years. And part of my job is as a trial lawyer is evaluating credibility. I also evaluated the credibility of those two witnesses, and I think she was very credible. I believe something did happen, and the fact that he so vehemently on just crazy ways didn't deny this and the, the way that he did that, I just felt like the credibility choice was in her favor. But again, at the end of the day, that was just one part of this that went into my, my, my thinking. The other part was really a, a lot about his temperament and the fact that I, sh I did not think he showed the independence. Look, there was so much controversy sur surrounding this guy. All he had to do was do two, a couple things. Number one, say, look, I want this committee to have access and I want the senators to have access to all of my, my records, not just a select group that a lawyer for, the, for him had screened. I want them to have access to as much as they do it, even if it means delaying this vote a couple of months, because there, there was no reason not to delay the vote. Supreme Court's operated with eight people many times in the past. And the second thing, when the, when the allegations were made, he obviously said, I want to have a hearing. But he also should have said, I want to see there an, an, an investigation, an impartial, independent investigation to try to figure out to, as best you can, which would have been difficult, by the way. But let's let's 
put this on ice for a little bit until we let the FBI do an independent investigation. But no, he adopted Senator McConnell's way. We're just going to plow through this. This is a Supreme Court nomination that's going to be there probably for 20 or 30 years. You don't plow through something like that. You do it deliberatively. And that's what I think the people of Alabama elected me for, not just to rubber stamp somebody or to do it or to be a knee jerk in opposition to somebody or to rubber stamp them. I wanted to do the due diligence, and I don't really believe I had an opportunity to do that. Rightly or wrongly, a lot of national pundits made comparisons between the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh and the allegations against Roy Moore that happened during your campaign against him. Did that factor in your thought process? Well, no, not really. Obviously, I had to live through uh, that campaign. But if you remember, I kind of stayed away from from all that in in that campaign. I I stated uh, matter-of-factly that I believe the women who came forward, I thought it was something that folks should consider. But then I moved on back to the issues that I thought people should take into account when they're electing a United States senator. So it it did not. I think more important for me, it was my background as a lawyer, my background with Senator Heflin on the Senate Judiciary Committee and trying to to know that my basic philosophy about nominations for, for cabinet level and, and administration positions that the, is that the president should have his own team. But, and, and that, frankly, on a judicial nominations, the needle kind of is, is in his direction uh, simply because I expect the president to nominate judges who reflect his basic judicial philosophy. But at the same time, the Constitution gives the Senate an independent role in determining that, a dual role with the president. So I, exor- I wanted to exercise that uh, independence. But I, I looked at this separate. I'm, I'm just, I wish people could see the binders and binders of uh, information that we reviewed with his record, his, his judicial opinions, his speeches, his writings, you, you, you name it. We, we knew a lot, but there was still so much more that we didn't know. And again, there are just some things in there I was very uncomfortable with some of the answers that he gave in the very beginning, in the first hearing, I was uncomfortable with a lot of the answers based on some documents that I saw. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about your first days in office. He took the job, and then he said, I'm going to recuse myself. I said, what kind of a man is this? Who is Jeff Sessions? A man of impeccable integrity? A heartless ideologue who will do anything to seal the border. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you. And that child may be separated from you as required by law. An Alabamian who rose through the ranks to attain his dream job only to be swallowed up by a controversy that could destroy the president. They didn't want to leave no doubt about who that boy was. They named him Jefferson Beauregard. Recused, a podcast by Reckon by AL.com, will explore untold stories from Jeff Sessions' past. Coming soon from Reckon Radio. Subscribe today. All right, welcome back. When you were elected, you were elected in December and you took office in January. That's a much quicker turnaround time than most senators elect. So what was the hardest part about transitioning into the new office? Oh, gosh. And, you know, trying to quickly build a staff you had confidence in. We hired Dana Gresham as my chief of staff very early on, got him into that mix as well. And I think just pulling together the staff for the first week, we were still in a, in a kind of a skeleton staff up there as other people were transitioning over to us that was the most difficult thing I, I think and then just just getting into the whirlwind 
of the schedule. We were I was sworn in on January third, and people were you know uh, you know look we it, it was the shiny penny in the Senate at that point, and people were wanting to meet with us all the time. They weren't wanting to, want to meet with me. They were wanting to do things at night. It was really interesting and really jam packed. For, and it still is, to be honest with you, but not as it was the, uh, at that time. I didn't have committees, and it helped me get my feet wet in the office and get established. I got on the committees the, the, probably the second week, and we started getting into the hearings and, and had all our committee staff uh, available. So it, I, I will say, though, an incredibly exciting time. Did you get We'd, hazed at all? You know, no. Everybody was really so nice. They were, uh, you know, on both sides of the aisle. I'm just telling you, there were so many folks on the other side of the aisle that were happy to see me. And they were incredibly nice. Senator Shelby was especially important in trying to help us. He and his staff were very good. The senators in the Democratic caucus were just, you know, loving it that they had another Southern senator. And the folks on the other side of the aisle, the minute I got on these committees, I started getting calls from other senators, uh, Republican senators, wanting me to consider certain legislation with them. Uh, senator Alexander from Tennessee especially has been a, a, a mentor. He, he's one of the few that literally, when they found out I was on the committee, he came to my office. He just, you know, a lot of people say, can you come over to talk to me? He came to my office and sat down and we talked about priorities and things. So it was, um, it was, it was, it was a really good, warm feeling that everybody was so nice. They were a little bit more distance after Alabama won the national championship <laughs> because that all of a sudden put things in and I obviously rubbed it in a little bit when I wore my Alabama shirt the next day. But uh, it was, it's been all fun. You've mentioned that you've worked for Senator Hal Heflin, who was a Democratic senator that held your seat before Correct. Jeff Sessions held that seat. Uh, how has the Senate changed since the time that you spent in his office to today? Remarkable change, uh, and, and, and really not for the better in a couple of ways. Number one, the Senate moves at a, at a different pace right now, and, and by that I mean there's so much that is not what they call regular order. Regular order means that you're trying to do the, the budget process on a rolling basis. Now, Senator Shelby and Senator Leahy on appropriations are trying to get us back to that. And they've done an incredible job this year trying to get our budgets done on time. In the last 15 or 20 years, it's been kicking the can down the road. And we're still doing it a little bit this year, but it's mainly because of the House. Uh, and they were a little slow to catch up to us. I think that there's a couple of differences, though. People in the Senate now, very few of them actually live in Washington. You've either been there a long, long time or you're on the West Coast or Hawaii or somewhere and you don't get home as much. People usually get out of there on Thursdays because it is, it is so difficult these days. You're, there are so many demands for fundraising for the next reelect, even if it's five years down the road, or uh, folks at home wanting your time. And so with people not up there together as much, on the weekends and in social settings and with their families, they just don't get to know each other as well. There are more caucus meetings. Democrats meet with Democrats and Republicans meet with Republicans. And there's not as much meeting together and doing some things. There's, there's a, a fair amount that goes on uh, with that, but not as much as there was when Judge Heflin was in the Senate, at least when I was there in the late 70s. And I think that that really has hurt the Senate in, in the sense of 
trying to fashion a, a, a lot more bipartisanship. You know, senators campaign against each other. You, you never saw that happen in, in those days. They just let the people in their state handle it. Now you got, you got these super PACs and everybody that Republicans have going against incumbent Democrats, Democrats have going against incumbent Republicans. That just seems a little unseemly to me when you're trying to build some bipartisanship. It's one thing to do it on an open seat. It's another to do it with a, with a colleague. And so I think the collegiality is still there, but it's just not as deep as it was right. uh, when Heflin there. Yeah, I mean, look, make no mistake. There's a lot more bipartisanship that goes on in the U.S. Senate than people see. Because of C-SPAN, you're seeing dueling press conferences and you're seeing, you know, speeches that are more political speeches than anything else on C-SPAN that are really speeches to an empty <laughs> chamber. But when it's dealing with committee work and legislation, there's a lot more effort to bring people in. I think I've co-sponsored 110 or so pieces of legislation, and and 100 of them are are bipartisan. I've done about 9 or 10 of my own where I'm an original sponsor, and at least 7 or 8 of those are with, with a Republican colleague. So there's a lot more work that goes on behind the scenes that people don't know of, both at the staff level as well as at the legislative level. Last year, after the school shooting that left 17 dead in Parkland, Florida, you made your first floor speech about an unexpected topic for an Alabama senator. You talked about gun control. Now, you're a hunter. You campaigned on being in favor of the Second Amendment. But what gun regulations are you in favor of? Well, let me let me correct you. And this is part of the problem, John, with the media and others. Oh, OK. I didn't, ma- I, I didn't make a speech about gun control. I made a speech about gun safety. And there is a difference. There, we've had gun regulations on the books now for 40 years, since, especially since 1968. But if you go back even further than that, automatic weapons have been banned in this country unless you get a special stamp and regulation, you know, registration requirement since the, you know, the, the days of the gangsters that used to run around with Tommy guns. So what I think is important is that we have some common sense regulations to address gun safety. Unfortunately, we always talk about gun safety in, in the wake of a, of a mass shooting and a tragedy like that. And we need to be having those dialogues more often because overwhelmingly people in this country, and I think people in the state of Alabama, who, who enjoy their weapons, enjoy their guns, they enjoy uh, not just hunting, they, they enjoy just going out and shooting in target practice, which I do. I do with my son as much as we can, which hasn't been as much lately. But everyone wants to have common sense regulations that will try to, to keep the hands out of, uh, of folks who should not have them but allow uh, law-abiding citizens the ability to get a firearm and enjoy it. Who are the folks that should not have them? Well, there's a lot of folks that should not have them. There, there are violent convicted fel- felons that should not have them. You know, right now the uh, law is that any, convict, any felony conviction will bar you from doing that. That may be going a little too far, but certainly violent criminals should uh, not be able to get a firearm. People that have some significant mental disorders should not be able to get a firearm. And we've talked about trying to have a system in place to where when people are concerned about someone, they can go in and maybe put a temporary stop on something. There are some common sense things like that. But we need to be talking about firearm safety, not gun control or just pro-guns. Pro because so many people in this country, we could prevent so many suicides. We could prevent accidental shootings. There's a number of things we can do to reduce the 
number of gun deaths of innocent people with gun deaths while at the same time not infringing on people like me who enjoy the right you know to buy a firearm and to use it whether it's out in the woods or at a target range we're going to take one more quick break and when we come back we'll talk about your thoughts on president trump and what democrats get right and wrong about the south to all the spirits that are here i open the gates i open the way i bloody mary call you here today Hi there, I'm Mike Scott with NOLA.com and the Times Picayune in New Orleans, and you're listening to Voodoo City, a new podcast rooted firmly in the city's darker side. Over the next several weeks, we'll explore the history of New Orleans, the people, the events, and the special brand of magic that still swirl about this 300-year-old city, and much of what we share will be documentable fact. One of the local newspapers, the Times Picayune, published a letter that was purportedly from the killer in which he sort of taunts the police and he announces that he is a huge fan of jazz music. And so if you happen to be playing jazz on this particular night or this particular weekend, he's not going to kill you. Some of it more rooted in myth and folklore. But you got to do it right. You got to think of a good wish. You got to touch the grave, make your wish, and turn around three times. And where we can, we'll try to separate the two, hopefully without spoiling the fun of it all very interesting when you reflect upon New Orleans that the three most colorful characters all lived at the same time. So Marie Laveau, Voodoo Queen, Madame Lalaurie, the torture of slaves. But Jean Lafitte was also in the mix. It was said that Marie Laveau traded gumbo recipes with Jean Lafitte. And in those many cases in which verifiable answers and reasonable explanations are elusive, we'll leave it up to you to decide what's really going on down here in Voodoo City. All right. Welcome back. Uh, most voters in Alabama, it's fair to say, support President Trump. They voted for him overwhelmingly. As a Democrat, how would you rate his presidency? It, I think it's a mixed bag right now because he has done some things primarily through regulation that a lot of businesses and, and folks like. Some of them I think were good. Some of them I think he, he went too far. The biggest problem I see right now is that the president simply uses his Twitter account and says things that are simply not true. Uh, and he uses that as a as a weapon for political and uh, reasons, and he's and he's really divided this country a lot. And the, and and the interesting thing about that is, I think as much as any president uh, that I've seen in a long time, he has the ability to bring the country together if he would just do it. But I'm afraid he is continuing to just try to divide people along racial lines, along economic lines, any number of things that he really doesn't have to do. I think that it's going to be interesting. He's had both houses of Congress, but yet there's not a lot except the, the tax bill, which is a mixed bag for America. It's not the be-all to end-all. It's a mixed bag. The banking bill, which he had to have Democrats to do, the opioid bill, which everybody appointed, was supported. Uh, there's not a lot of legislative accomplishments that he's been able to do. And I think now he's got to either – we're either going to see one of two things. He's either going to reach across and start trying to work with people and understand that that we're in this together and that compromise is uh, progress and not a battle lost, that he can work with uh, people like me and other Democrats to try to come up with things for this country that will move the country forward, or he can continue to try to polarize the country. I'm hoping he takes the former uh, position. 
Um, if he if he doesn't, then you're not going to see a lot coming out of this Congress. It just won't happen. But if he's willing to talk to us, we can do a lot of things. We can get immigration reform. We might can get some good uh, gun sense policy that will help reduce the number of, of, of deaths in this country. We can c- keep the military strong. That's one area I think we've got a lot of bipartisan support. There's a lot of things I think can be accomplished, but he's got to you know, reach across the aisle and try to work with folks and understand he can't get 100% of what he wants. And the Democrats in the House and, and folks in my caucus are going to have to realize they're not going to get what they want. They're not, and that's, that's the art of, of political uh, progress, is trying to work together so that the, we can progress with deals that everybody can accept and agree with and go forward. You mentioned immigration reform. What would you want to see in immigration reform? Well, you know, look, I was part of a group. Uh, You know, this gets completely lost in uh, the immigration debate. But last February, March, I was part of a group called the Common Sense Coalition in the Senate, which I know sounds like an oxymoron for for Washington, D.C., but it was about 20, 22 uh, Republican and Democratic senators who took the president at his word in January when he said, we need to not worry about comprehensive immigration reform. Let's do do two pillars. Let's do DACA and give these young people who have never known any other country other than the United States a path to be be citizens. DACA is also known as the The Dreamers. Dreamers, That's correct. Let's get that done. And also let's 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 fortify the border. Let's do some border security here uh, that we do. Are you talking about a wall? A wall, new technology in the sense of drones, more border guards, more immigration judges, everything to protect the border. See, that's the, the president always talks about the borders, the borders, the borders, the borders and protecting the borders. Everyone agrees with that. There is no one. There is no one that wants open borders. That bill that we fashioned, I was a part of, would have funded border security for up to $25 billion dollars. That included money for a wall where a wall could be built. There's, there's a lot of issues with that, but it also had increased technology. It did all the things that his Homeland Security told us they wanted. At the end of the day, though, he, the hardliners in the administration decided they wanted more. They wanted to change the legal immigration. The, 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 the visas, the diversity visas, the, the seasonal worker visas, the, what they call the chain migration and other people call family reunification. Uh, the same program that Melania Trump's parents came to this country on. They wanted to change all of that. And so the border security went by the wayside. And that bill got defeated by Republicans by about three or four votes. And that was unfortunate. So I think right now, what I would really like to see initially is I would like to see that bill be brought back. And we're looking at maybe doing that. That bill is a start. And that would fund the wall to an extent. But it would be, again, border security, not internal enforcement. That's a separate budgetary item. But fund border security. Also do uh, get the dreamers taken care of. Then we can deal with any other comprehensive immigration down the road. Now, I will say this. I think there may be some appetite for bringing back what they all call the old Gang of Eight bill that went down in flames after a couple of people decided that were sponsors decided to run for president and it all of a sudden didn't look to be as good a political idea for them. But it's a, it was a really good bill. That would have funded border security to $40 billion. So if that bill had passed, and it did pass the Senate, we, you know, we might not be having as the, the same kind of discussions. So 
on the front end, at least DACA and border security, uh, we can look at the others because everyone that you talk to, every every policy advisor, every economist will tell you we need a healthy legal immigration system. Right now, I was just up in center Alabama talking about the farming industry and how they can't get good workers, how people right now when we've got low unemployment, people are dying to get folks to to come in there both as seasonal workers as well as long-term workers. And we could do that. I think with uh, a good, with some just minor tweaks to the immigration uh, packages, and at the same time do our real work with with DACA and the Dreamers as well as border security. Now, on the campaign, obviously Trump was talking a lot about this caravan of immigrants that were coming up from Central America, making their way up through Mexico, moving towards the border. While this was going on, there were a few traumatic events where deranged people sent bombs to political candidates and one man went into a Pittsburgh synagogue and shot several people. Right. In the wake of that, you mentioned that Trump's rhetoric reminded you of George Wallace's and that it was escalating. It does. What do you mean by that? Well, no, it it speaks for itself. You know, we come from a state and and don't, don't forget Right before those bombs were found, there were two African-Americans killed in Kentucky where a guy tried to get into a church, went across the street to a grocery store and killed one lady as she was just walking out with her groceries. I think rhetoric that what we have seen, particularly from the administration, is very dangerous. In this state, we have seen, you know, words matter. And words have consequences. In, in my view, and I've studied the civil rights movement an awful lot, as you know, and what I saw were political leaders in the state, Wallace and Bull Connor in particular, that in effect empowered people like the Klan and others to just have their way and do the things that resulted in four deaths in a church. Uh, it re- resulted in the deaths of two children, that's, uh, two black ch- uh, boys that same day, other uh, bombs being uh, planted. People, it, it, it's hard to say a normal law-abiding person's not gonna they're gonna take that and they may blow it off as just you know and just shake their head but there are just enough people in this world that think that that is a signal when they start talking when people start saying that folks are the enemy that has a special meaning to a lot of people because enemies are dangerous to your person they're not just it's not just a political opponent it is someone who could harm you and so people take those words and they hear it and let me say this and i've said this and i've used the term well i think the president is the offender in chief of this rhetoric and you only have to look at what he has said about charlottesville you only have to look at what he has said uh, in the wake of the with a caravan, which miraculously you didn't hear hardly anything from him after the election. It just went away. He just, you know, heated it all up to get people riled up for the election. But what you what, it, this is not simply something that he has done alone, because I have seen uh, Repub- uh, Democratic uh, congressmen who are people in Congress who have said that it's okay and they've encouraged people to harass uh, their Republican colleagues in restaurants and bars and uh, train stations, and I've seen that happen. That is wrong as well because that can, can evoke not only a violent reaction to people that they are talking to, but also someone who may be so angry that they would even say that. It, they would flip it the other way. We need to dial back this rhetoric. It, it's real easy after these elections, John, and you're hearing it on 
both sides of the aisle right now. We just need to be more civil. We need to be more respectful. But there's few people up there doing it. And th- we've got to get back to that. But it really starts with the American public as well. Because people, I've, I've heard so many times, and people, uh, everybody I talk to that's in office have said more people have told them they want more civ- civility, they mo- want more respect, they want people to talk to each other to get things done. But at the end of the day, sometimes they don't vote that way. They vote for the rhetoric on both sides of the aisle. This is not just a Republican issue, and I really, really mean that. This is an issue for Republicans and Democrats. They need to sit back and take stock of what's happened in this country and where we are and the dangers that we may be going on if everybody is considered an enemy and a combatant as opposed to a friend who you can talk to and that you might disagree with. Well, the day after the election, Trump may have stopped talking about the caravan, but he also asked for Attorney General Jeff Sessions' resignation. You're sitting in the whole—you are holding a Senate seat once famously held by Jeff Sessions. Were you surprised that he resigned as Attorney General? I was surprised that it was that quick. I mean, I have been expecting it, especially after some of Jeff Sessions' colleagues in the Senate started— you know, they basically turned away. At one point, it was People like— like Lindsey Graham. Yeah, it was one point there will be hell to pay, and then all of a sudden they say, well, you know, maybe the president needs to make a change. So I think everyone was expecting it. I think the swiftness uh, was a, a little bit surprising as coming that quick and placing in somebody in his place that is— probably much more controversial than even Senator Sessions was as attorney general. If Matthew Whitaker, his replacement, uh, were to come before a Senate vote, would you vote to confirm him? I don't see how I could at this point, based on everything that's been coming out now. He has prejudged so many things. He has been, I don't think that uh, he will protect the special counsel's investigation. If he was to come before the Senate today, uh, that was, I would, I would have a very hard time to do that. However, you know, he may be in that spot for a while, and the proof will be in his performance. And if he performs as what I think an attorney general should perform, and that is an, an independent voice, not the, not the personal lawyer of the president. The attorney general is the lawyer for the people of this country, not the personal lawyer for Donald Trump or whoever is sitting in the office of the presidency. If he demonstrates that he has that independence, and that he can exercise that. I don't I understand about carrying out the president's agenda on criminal justice and, and other things. I may disagree with uh, some of that, although the most recent one I'm all in favor of. The criminal of. justice bill. Yeah, yes. it, which, which was interesting because I think Attorney General Sessions would likely have opposed that. Uh, so it's not the, the policies. If he's just exercising that independent, I may change my mind. Uh, I think that we'll, we'll see how that goes down the road. What was your previous relationship like with Jeff Sessions? Well, Jeff and I have always been friends uh, for many years. I I got to know him when he was U.S. attorney, and I was a young assistant U.S. attorney. We disagreed on a lot of political issues. Uh, We disagree a lot specifically on immigration and the fact that he, I think, went back to the the days of old when trying to um, criminalize so many low-level drug offenders where I think you could do things differently. I think... His view as attorney general was a kind of a throwback to the 70s and 80s when we were just beginning the war on drugs, which has failed miserably. Um, so we disagree with that. But on a personal level, uh, we've always liked each other. We've been very friendly. Um, I, you know, look, I think he caught a lot of unfair criticism. Uh, he certainly did the right thing by recusing himself. He was caught in the middle 
of uh, these allegations. And, and I believe as a lawyer, as a member of the Justice Department, he had no choice. And that's where I kind of go back that the president thought we were supposed to be loyal to him and not loyal to the department. Well, let's talk a little bit before we wrap up about uh, you have a book coming out I do. in January. Yep. What's it about? Well, it's, uh, the, the title of it is called Bending Toward Justice. It's a, a play on the, Dr. King's word about the arc of the universe is, is long, but it bends toward justice. Uh, and it is primarily a memoir about the church bombing cases. Uh, it will start off as, as for me growing up here in Birmingham and kind of a segregated uh, community out in Fairfield and not fully grasping what was going on here in Birmingham uh, at the time. It will go from there into college and law school and especially in law school when I watched my friend Bill Baxley prosecute the first of those church bombing cases uh, in 1977 involving uh, Robert Chambliss known as Dynamite Bob. My progress through the political world and as an assistant U.S. attorney and then becoming U.S. attorney in handling those two cases, which were just a, a highlight of any lawyer to handle and get the convictions of Bobby Cherry and Tommy Blanton for the murder of those four young girls. And then we'll kind of end. I mean, that truly was a platform that I used in the campaign because it was, I think, a good demonstration of who I am as a person. And so we will talk about that and how much it has meant to so many people over the years and how it has helped me, those convictions in doing those cases, I think really had such incredible meaning, more than the convictions themselves, but in the aftermath and all of the people I've met and talked to. And then we, we just kind of moved that into a little bit about the campaign and the election and just kind of the state of politics in general. I'm really excited about it coming out. It'll be out the first uh, week of March. Well, you prosecuted these cases 20 years ago. The book is coming out next year. Right. Uh, you know, they, they say when a politician releases a book in 2019, it means that he's running for president <laughs> in 2020. So are you running for president in 2020? I have no plans to do that. There is nothing like that, that on my radar. This book has been in the making for a, a long time. But, you know, I, I, my job as a lawyer, my day job as a lawyer, I was not like John Grisham who could just sit down and wait in a courtroom and just rattle off stuff. It took a lot, and I got some, some great help. Uh, and it was just a long time coming to try to make sure that we did it the right way. And um, so that's, it's just simply was time. I, it was an opportunity to do it and finally get it, get it in, in print because there are so many things about that case that I felt like the, the book is not about me. It's really about how that case came together. And there are so many facts and circumstances about Birmingham and how those cases came together and the team that we had that I just felt like needed to be preserved. And it had, and that's, it's solely, I wanted to get it out two years ago, four years ago, five years ago, but it just, it just couldn't come to fruition. Well, if you're not running yourself, you're a longtime friend of Joe Biden's. Cory mm-hmm. Booker came down and stumped with you during the campaign. You've worked on legislation together. Is there a colleague of yours that you're going to be endorsing? You know, I, I don't know that yet. I will tell you, I think the field is wide open right now in the Democratic, uh, for the Democratic primary. I would obviously tend to lean toward my old friend Joe Biden more than anybody. I think he is just a, he's just an amazing man. He's an incredible uh, and gifted public servant. And I know his age is a factor, and he may or may not run. Uh, when, after that, though, we'll just have to see how things go. I, what I'm hoping, though, is that that the Democratic Party will uh, look a little bit toward the middle. I know that the, the voices on the left seem to be the loudest these days, 
But I think if you look around what's really going on around the country, it's the voices in the middle that are where most people in this country are. I think there's a lot more voices in the middle of Alabama than people give them credit for. And so what I'm looking for is folks that are going to really be out there to talk about those same kitchen table issues and to have those dialogues with folks on the issues that mean so much to folks every day. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Senator Jones. My uh, pleasure. It's been great. It's awesome. Thank you, John. Okay, thanks everybody for listening. For Reckon, I'm John Hammontree. If you like this interview, please subscribe to Reckon Radio on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. We've got a great show about Jeff Sessions coming out soon. And we'll also be having other interviews and things like that in the future. Thanks. Thanks.